I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of All Things Policy. I'm Anu, and with me I have Shridhar. You know us from the 20 Million Jobs Project in Takshashila, and we've been work talking to you a lot about skills and jobs. We thought today is a good opportunity to actually examine a project that's been close to our heart and that we've been speaking about in the past, which is career impact porn. So, welcome to the podcast, Shridhar. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Anu. And uh, yeah, it's nice and sunny outside. And uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Awesome. Well, let's start at the basics, Shridhar. Let's talk about what is the problem with skills in India, which is where this conversation on career impact porns for us started, right? looking at some of the stats that we've spoken about in the past day as well and i think what a lot of industry experts have also said is even in this climate of layoffs and this climate of job shortages potentially etc there is a huge skill mismatch that is being observed in the market especially as we talk about new technologies so that's coming up ai seems to be all the buzzword we've had a conversation with skills being the buzzword for the budget in 2023 as well So just looking at a few stats for our listeners as well according to a survey in 2020 33% of companies reported the need to recruit more workers owing to their digital transformation efforts compared to 19% which saw a reduction in the number of workers in 2022 identified skill gap being the greatest barrier or self reported greatest barriers for indian companies had actually risen to 60% of the challenges they experienced versus the 34% in 2020 and both the unicef and the global business coalition for education have actually said that more than 50% of indian youth is not on track to have the education and skills necessary for employment by 2030 which really goes to show that this is a problem that cuts across strata of society cuts across privilege and therefore needs an innovative solution that actually speaks to potentially not just a wider social base but also the circumstance that we find ourselves in i'd love to get your take shridhar on how do we actually think about this project of skilling that's not just economic in nature but has this potential to have a social impact and then how do we think about actually financing these projects absolutely i think like skilling is the biggest problem of the century i would say right so if you and it's not a problem that's uh, restricted to india it's a problem across the world if you see the opposition to globalization across the world in the western countries which are relatively more affluent you will find that it's because many of the people are worried about like you know immigration they're worried about people coming away and taking away their jobs it's basically because they realize that unless you get better skill unless like you know you have the more relevant skills today you're not going to earn enough money to have a good living earlier maybe even if you flip burgers at mcdonalds you could have a decent living today that's not possible right so if you want to have a decent living you need to have better jobs and for those better jobs you need different skills which are more market relevant and this is a problem in the west and it's gets highlighted very significantly in a country like india so according to 
the ILO, I think like some 29 million jobs will go unfilled in India this decade. And that's a shame considering that we are woefully inadequate in terms of uh, the number of jobs that we create each year. We need 20 million jobs each year as our project sort of uh, highlights, but we probably create less than 2 million jobs each year. Therefore, this gap cannot be filled unless we fix this skills mismatch. So that's number one. Then why has the skills mismatch happened? I mean, I think it's very obvious because like technology changed in our grandparents' generation or even in our parents' generation. Maybe like, you know, you could have like one skill, get to work and then like pretty much use the same skill, make it better, become more proficient at the skill that you've got and uh, use that to move up the ladder in your organization and do well. So that was adequate. Most people stayed in one company forever. Companies invested in training these people as technology changed once every decade or so. There were some small changes. Maybe the company brings in a new machinery to do something and then they send a few people to Germany or to the US, etc. or to Ludhiana to get trained. I mean, it depends on what it is, right? So basically, you would have these kind of things happen. But today, people don't stay in jobs for very long. Therefore, organizations also don't feel compelled to... Um, they don't see a good business case in training people because they feel that anyway, these guys will leave us in two, three years. Therefore, why waste so much money training them? They don't uh, invest enough in upskilling. People suddenly find themselves as demand shifts from one technology to another or one skill to another. Suddenly, a whole bunch of people find themselves without a job or not required or not relevant in the marketplace. While uh, those who have those skills and who manage to acquire them find themselves highly in demand. So I think that's going to be true of AI, etc. today, where like, you know, people who can work in AI are going to be highly sought after. But there are many jobs which AI might replace, which suddenly will find people without a job. So, yeah, so that's the problem with skills. And um, how do you... So I think it's important to think about it this way. We all have to commit ourselves to a lifetime of upskilling. It's not going to be easy for us to just say, okay, I've got this great degree from this great university and I've got this job, so therefore I'm all set for life. You're not. You need to remember that every couple of years you'll have to survey the market, figure out whether you've got the right skills, go out and acquire new skills. I think that's a reality for everybody who wants to have a, a strong and fulfilling career. But it might be easy for some of us from who are earning relatively higher salaries and um, come from urban backgrounds, come from homes and a social milieu which gives us access to what's going on in the world. It tells us like, hey, there are opportunities in this area or that. So it's easy for us to identify what skills to acquire. We also have the uh, money to go out and acquire that training. We may even have the information about like where the which training institute will provide the right, uh, will provide high quality of training in these areas. Now, imagine like you're a farmer in rural Bihar and you have a, a daughter who aims to have a career. You're not going to be able to provide the guidance to her in terms of like, you know, what she should learn or what she should study or what skills she should acquire. Imagine if she was like, you know, doing a small job in a primary school in Bihar. And then, like, you know, she realizes that uh, computers, uh, distance learning has become important. And, like, uh, therefore, she needs to learn how to operate a computer. 
So she doesn't know that like, you know, where to go and learn how to use a computer. She doesn't know that using a computer will increase her income, how much and how significantly. So these are things that um, I think the skilling programs have to deal with. People's lack of knowledge about what to learn and where to learn from. Exactly. I think, Sridhar, like I said before as well, it could, to me, it is not, it's a systemic issue that goes beyond privilege as well. You're right. Of course, those of us who have privilege have access to skills in a much more traditional form, which is either through universities or paid models of upskilling, etc. And we have a better understanding of the milieu of skills that are available. But the opportunities that exist and the skills that the market demand, it is still quite subjective in an age or our understanding of it, right? It depends on what my uncle may have studied or what my cousin may have done in the US, etc. So that brings me to actually my question in terms of how do we think of this in a manner that is creative and more equitable? Skilling has typically been either on demand, uh, which is for people like us, is you could pay or potentially get a loan if you have that amount of social access. Or it is philanthropic in nature, right? Where usually someone's going to give a grant and say, hey, I want to educate like say 100 girls in this rural town or rural village, pardon me. So I'm just thinking of, let's talk a little bit about what are the models that exist or what have existed in the world that can actually, you know, be a creative solution. And maybe we'll take a quick break right before that, but let's have a think on what these creative models are. Sure. And we're back from our break. So, Sridhar, do you have any creative ideas on how do we make skilling financially equitable? Yeah, I think this it takes me back two decades. I was having a conversation with a dear friend, Karun Philip, who unfortunately passed away in December last year. So, Karun was very ahead of his times in terms of the way he thought and what he thought about. And he told me about an idea of how we could use securitization as a means of like, you know, financing and sending money towards the right training programs for people. So here's what he thought about it, right? And here, here's what he, he suggested. And basically, he talked about providing at-risk loans to people who want to learn something. So number one, like you talked about somebody who's like a young learner in a rural village in India. This person wants to acquire a skill so that he or she can be employable. Right, but so that they can be employable. Now, what do they do? So they go and uh, find out. They understand that, like maybe learning how to operate a CNC machine will help them get a better-paying job than what they have currently. Maybe they're earning ten thousand rupees a month now, and they want. They see that potential to earn twenty-five thousand rupees a month by learning how to operate a CNC machine. Now, there's a training center which offers training in CNC uh, in operating a CNC machine. It costs 50,000 rupees to get trained. It takes three months, which means that it's going to really cost these people like 10,000 into three, 30,000 rupees, which is the lost in opportunity cost of income plus 50,000 rupees. So 80,000 rupees is what they need. Now they have an op option. They don't have 80,000 rupees available for get this training. So what do they do? If they really feel confident that they can get a job at the end of it, they will borrow to 80,000 rupees in the hope that within like a few months they will get this job and with that job they'll be able to repay this loan along with interest. Now, there's a possibility that they were wrong in the quality of training provided by the training institute might not have been great. The training institute might not have tied up with employers who can go come in and like, you know, uh, employ these people. Maybe the kind of machine that they were training people on is no longer in 
use and it has become obsolete and they're just training them in the wrong machine. So all these things can happen and therefore this guy might suddenly find themselves worse off than he was before because he's now borrowed money which he has to repay and he doesn't have a job. He's lost even the little job that he had before. So what does such a person do most often? They just don't go and get themselves trained. They give up. So imagine a situation where because the risk of like, you know, failure is too high for them. So therefore, what do they do? They is imagine if somebody were to give them an at-risk loan. Training institute says, you know, I'm very confident that you will get a job at the end of this. I'll give you 80,000 rupees, right? So you pay me 50,000 rupees as fees and I'll give you 10,000 rupees a month as stipend while you're being trained. You have to repay me 80,000 rupees plus like a nominal interest. But what you do is you pay me a percentage of your future income. So assuming that in case you earn over 20,000 rupees a month, then you give me like 20% or 30% of your increased income for a certain period of time subject to a certain cap, etc. And that will help me to help repay this loan. So this sounds like great to this person, right? So now there's no longer any risk. This person is not worried about borrowing money and having to repay it if they don't get a loan. Instead, they know that there is an at-risk. It's only repayable if they get the outcome that is promised. Now, think of this training institute. Solves the problem of the learner. So this learner can go out and acquire a new skill. Now, think of the problem of the training institute. The training institute doesn't have unlimited liquidity to provide at-risk loans to everybody and wait a couple of years for the money to come in. They need the money to come in. They need some liquidity immediately. So what do they do? They take all these loans that they've given to hundreds of people and pool it together and create an, a special purpose vehicle, which will then securitize these loans and then create like tranches of senior tranches, junior tranches and an equity tranche. The equity tranche is the most risky. The persons who hold own bonds within the equity tranche will be paid the last. They could be governments, they could be philanthropic organizations, they could be CSR funds of companies. And the junior tranche could be the training institute, which is taking a little more risk than somebody. And you have the senior tranche, which is a financial investor who comes in to do this. So, Yanu, you wanted to say something at this point. Yeah, thanks, Shreda. Thank you for the succinct explanation of what a career impact bond is. Right, A question that was coming to my mind is that we've heard of some concepts like this, and I know you will talk a little bit more about it, right? Uh, and it's very interesting because, of course, there is skin in the game for the learner as well. But the more common concept that we've kind of seen in India has been the impact bond, which is essentially where investors are coming in or risk investors are coming in and putting in money for, say, something like skilling against an agreed upon outcome. And if the agreed upon outcome is met, then outcome funders were another body of funders who've decided to put money in then pay back the money to the impact investor of some sort, right? And while this is great, of course, one of the pieces is that it's not necessarily cyclical. So the money does eventually run out. There is all sorts of issues with measurement and that needs to be done independently and, and really robustly, of course. And then more importantly, there is no skin in the game for the actual beneficiaries of it, right? So it is philanthropy that is more entrepreneurial and that's amazing we've seen uh, the skill india bond for example being released which is done by the nstc in uh, collaboration with a number of institutions right and in fact the first development impact bond uh, which is also a similar concept was actually created in india as well under educate girls for project in rajasthan and bilwara right 
the question that I had for you is, can you talk to us a little bit about why we're not really seeing career impact bonds take off the way that we would like to see it, uh, especially because it does tend to solve this problem of measurement to a certain degree and extent. And it also provides a lot more ownership for the people who are actually impacted. Um, and then if you can also maybe address where are the successes that we have seen of such a model of career impact? Sure. I think like career impact bonds have been around for about a decade. While my friend Karun talked about it, I think there's a company called Social Finance in the US which took it up, gave it its name as career impact bonds. And they've been like, you know, out there pushing this idea. And about they've done about $350 million worth of funding through career impact bonds for various skilling programs with uh, different levels of success and returns and so on. So that's number one. Number two, I think it's important to understand the difference between a social impact bond and a career impact. A social impact bond, what happens is that, you know, unlike in the past where some philanthropists just came in and said, let's spend money on a library, it'll have lots of positive social outcomes. Someone else just comes and says, hey, I mean, like, if you want to set up a library, I want to know whether you're increasing the number of young readers in your, in your town. So how many new young readers have you added to the list? is going to be the impact that this library is going to be measured against. And the people who set up this library will be given the money for the library, provided they achieve the outcome that has been promised. Now, a career impact bond is not very different. In the sense that the training institute, if you look at it, I mean, will get paid, provided it delivers on the outcomes that it promises the learner. The difference is, instead of a philanthropist paying the training institute, you have a situation where the student, the learner himself, the one who has actually benefited from the training, takes the trouble to repay the people who have helped him acquire that knowledge or acquire that skill, acquire that training. So therefore, it becomes more sustainable. So because philanthropic funds will always run out eventually. Right? However, however much you, you may li like it to be different, there is a limit to how much you will get. You cannot turn around the dollar fast enough for it to provide adequate benefit. But if you have people who are benefiting from the skilling programs actually paying for the training, then you have it, it, it becomes more sustainable. So the number one. Number two, the thing about career impact bonds, which I like, is that like if you have a situation with earlier, if you were a learner and you wanted to acquire a skill, you went to a training institute, the training institute charged a fee and it got its money. It didn't care whether you got a job. It didn't care whether you actually learned what you hope to learn or whether what you've learned is relevant in the marketplace for the next for the foreseeable future and so on and um, but now with the career impact bonds and at-risk loans being in part of this you'll find that the training institute will also tie up with employers it will it'll ensure that like the training that it's providing is current and it's relevant and it will help the person the learner to get a job because they now their interests are aligned both the learner wants to get a job and the training institute also wants the learner to get a job because only then do they get paid. Then the, look at the financiers of all this. So these people who finance these things and they will also, they also want the loan to be repaid, right? Everybody wants the loan to be repaid, which means everybody wants this person to get a job, which means the whole system is going to work towards helping this person get a job, number one. And number two, if this person gets a job and does well and repays the loan, more money will flow towards such training. If this person is unable to get a job and doesn't do well and doesn't repay the loan, 
then such training may be may uh, looked at again before like it's funded right so therefore it will ensure that money also flows towards training programs which are useful and help in generating jobs so you don't need somebody top down sitting and deciding that here are these 10 skills that young indians ought to learn right you don't need that the market will see what is successful what works what doesn't work and therefore help in directing liquidity towards those programs that are useful so i think that's the difference between this and that's why i'm a great advocate of for these career impact bonds now in terms of whether it has been successful or not i think like couple of things are to be looked at especially in india i think in india we were we had a large number of people who were quite unbanked so if you look at people who were looking for jobs who needed some skills to be acquired who wanted loans to go out and acquire these skills etc these were people who probably didn't have access to a bank account in the past they were difficult to trace and like you know manage but now i think like you know willful defaults can come down with access to jandan aadhar and mobile with this triumvirate of this of jam i think like you know it's much easier today to keep track of somebody's income and if like one of your learners goes out gets a job gets paid and also india has become much more digital much much more uh, and there is also a trend towards formalizing of the economy so therefore i see that it's going to be more successful in the future than it was in the past earlier i think like we did not have a good mechanism of handling willful default and therefore nobody really saw it as true means of actually getting money back i spoke to a couple of people who were doing things like returnable grants they said that they help train people and then they said like you know if you if these people get a job we told them that if you can and if you feel like it please return the money to us so it's not like there's no contract to return the money but it's just that a gentleman's agreement if you will where you say that okay if i do get a job i'll repay it and therefore you do that so i think this willful defaults is the biggest problem the followed by the other thing is like you no know, how do you make an idea like this much more visible and uh, bring it forward so i think like that's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast to sort of talk about this idea a little bit more get listeners interested in this and then um, come back and ask us some more questions i think it's a great idea i think it's a great idea to use the market and the power of the market to direct money towards training programs that upskilling programs that will help in generating jobs and uh, this is a sustainable model once because i think this money will just keep rotating right so money which comes in can go on generating and training new sets of people generating adequate returns and like and therefore you can you don't have to worry about whether there are a million indians to be skilled or a 100 million indians to be skilled i think it's the scalability of this idea which appeals to me the most on that note to our dear listeners like shida said uh, we're passionate about this but uh, we're also hoping to get more ideas and thoughts on it so if you would like to engage with us on this topic do write to us and do keep listening to all things policy it's always a pleasure to talk to you shida and i hope everyone really enjoyed this chat thank you very much anu If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. 
The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.